encourage you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John chapter 6, we've seen already in this chapter the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples crossing the sea to the other side, and Jesus miraculously coming to them upon the water and joining them on the other side. And we want to pick up now in verse 22. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, and we'll read through verse 29. Let us hear the Word of God. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which His disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but His disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did You come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek Me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's unite our hearts and let's pray as we come to the preaching of the Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, as we come again this Lord's Day to be fed from Your Word, we pray with earnest hearts that You would give us Your Spirit. Father, even as Your Son told these crowds, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We know that all of us who are Your people, we once lived in darkness. Our minds were corrupted. We suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We suppressed the light and delighted instead in darkness, the deeds of darkness. Father, we thank You that in Your good time and by Your sovereign power, Your Spirit broke into our night and showed us the light of the glory of Your Son in the Gospel, whose voice we sit eager to hear this morning. Father, we long to be taught of You. We pray that none here would be like these crowds who have who merely have interest in the passing, fleeting things of this world 
and yet have no interest in sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus to be taught by Him. We pray, Father, that we would have a hunger and a thirst to be taught and instructed by Your Word, the Word of eternal life. Father, build Your church, we pray. We ask that You would strengthen Your people. Remind us of the Gospel. Remind us of the glories of Christ. And Father, we pray for those who are here who do not belong to Christ, who are not yet in His fold. We pray, Father, that You would work by Your Spirit in their hearts. Awaken them to the danger of their present situation, the danger of going on living in sin, living as those who reject the Gospel of Your Son. Open their eyes. Open their hearts. Have mercy upon them. Reveal to them their great and desperate and urgent need for the pardon of all their sins. Awaken them to their urgent need for Christ who alone can save the sinner to the uttermost. Father, all other so-called saviors are imposters. Your Son is the only way. He is the only truth and the only life. We pray that You would convince them of that even this morning. Teach us, Father, we pray. Bless our time in Your Word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll consider, as we pick up again in John 6, we'll consider this passage, verse 22-29, through 29, under our usual headings. We'll begin with exposition. That is, what does the passage teach us? Uh, what is God saying to us in the passage? And then we will move secondly, I've combined the second and third categories, we will move then into our doctrinal instruction and practical application. And so let's begin with our exposition and consider the text together. I encourage you, if you do have a copy of God's Word, to have it open to John chapter 6 as we consider these verses together. And so beginning our exposition, let's begin in verse 22. Verses 22 through 24 set the context for this crowd's second encounter with the Lord. This is the same crowd who has witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. You remember back in verse 15, knowing Jesus knowing that these crowds intended to take Him by force and to make Him king, Jesus then commanded His disciples to get into a boat and go before Him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, while He remained on that side to dismiss the crowds and to go into the mountain to pray. Now, we know, because we've read John's Gospel, we know that after He went into the mountain for a season of prayer, He then, in the night, miraculously came to the disciples walking upon the water and then brought them safely to the other side. These crowds, though, don't know that. After they were dismissed by the Lord Jesus, these crowds most likely just each went to their own homes with the impression that the next morning He would still be on their side of the sea. And so that's where verse 22 picks up. It says, "...the next day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea..." That is, the side opposite of where Jesus and the, and the disciples now are. 
when they saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Now, basically, this is John's way of telling us that the people were standing there on the shore doing some math here, realizing there was only one boat. We saw Jesus' disciples depart without Jesus, and therefore, where is Jesus? Why can't we find him here? And then verse 23 is kind of inserted here. John says, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, some commentators think that John mentions these boats from Tiberias to explain how these crowds got to the other side of the sea um, because they had seen these boats, um, you know, and then they, you know, I guess hitched a ride to the other side of the sea. That's how some people take this comment, is that it explains the means by which the, the crowd gets to the other side. I don't think that that's what John is saying. Rather, I think the significance of this mentioning of these boats from Tiberias is that it explains how the crowds got the idea to look for Jesus on the other side. Namely, they saw that there were boats near where the Lord fed the 5,000, and they must have got it into their head that, well, Jesus definitely didn't get into that one boat with his disciples. Perhaps he caught a ride with these boats and went to the other side. And so they get the idea. Um, verse 24 says, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, they probably came, went to Capernaum for at least two reasons. Number one is because it's possible the crowds knew that that's where Jesus told his disciples to go. And he, they knew that Jesus would not long be separated from his disciples. And so they go to Capernaum. But a second reason that's just as plausible is Capernaum had by this time become something of the Lord's chief residence for his ministry. It had become a, a home base for his ministry in Galilee. And so these crowds get into boats, they go to the other side to Capernaum in order to find Christ, and they are not disappointed when they get there. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea. Pause there just for a second. Verse 59, the very last verse of this chapter, after Jesus' discourse that he gives here, Verse 59, John tells us that Jesus gave this discourse in the synagogue in Capernaum. Okay. So for whatever reason, John doesn't give us that setting up front. He gives it to us at the very end. But we need to kind of, as we picture this scene in our minds, it's not that they get off the boat and they meet Jesus on the shoreline, but rather they find him, as was his custom, teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And that's where this discussion, this conversation takes place. So when they find him, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, notice they first flatter him with the term rabbi. They've already seen that he refused their motions to make him king. And so now they at least want to ascribe to him the honorary title of rabbi, which is very ironic. 
Because as you probably know, the word or title rabbi means teacher. And that's very ironic because as we'll see, they are not interested in him being their teacher. And so they, uh, uh, they greet him as rabbi and then they ask him, when did you come here? And I, I think that included in that question, when did you come here, is the question, how did you come here? Right? They're perplexed. They're, there were no other boats. We saw your disciples leave by themselves without you. When did you get here? How did you get here? And Jesus doesn't answer their question. In a very real sense, it wouldn't have done them any good if he had answered their question. I mean, think about it. Even if he had told them that in the night I came miraculously upon the water to my disciples and then we came here, would they actually believe him? I say that because if you look down just a couple verses after, or one verse after our text this morning ends, in verse 30, they're already asking him for another sign to prove his authority even after they've just seen the previous day the feeding of the 5,000. This is a hypocritical group. And so instead of telling them how he got there and when he got there, he instead reproves them and tells them why they are here. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you. So he's not taking a poll here. He's not putting to them a question. Do you guys think this might be the motivation for which you're here? He's making an assertion. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. So note that. They are seeking Jesus. But they are seeking Him with improper motives. Outwardly, to the, to the merely worldly eye, it looks like they are devoted to Christ. They have a zeal for Christ. After all, they have left their own shore and they have taken to the sea just to find Jesus. But He knows their hearts as well as their motivations. He says, you seek Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, that might seem contradictory to us at first glance. What does Jesus mean they seek Him not because they saw signs, but because they had their fill of the loaves? If you think about it, their fill of the loaves was the sign. What He means here when He says you seek Me not because you saw signs is He means that the sign that you saw is not having its intended effect upon you that it ought to have. Right? Why does God give signs? Why did God give signs? Primarily, the purpose of signs is they are given to validate the messenger and the message of the messenger. Right? You think of, of the sign of the Father speaking audibly at Jesus' baptism. What does He say? He says, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then what does He say? Listen to Him. The significance of the voice from heaven was to identify this is indeed my Son whom I have sent and therefore you ought to listen to Him. That's what signs should do. They 
this crowd should be greeting him and saying, Lord, because of what we witnessed and experienced yesterday, we cannot deny that you are a teacher sent from God because otherwise no one could do what you have done unless God is with him. And therefore, Lord, teach us. Instruct us. You remember, that's even how Nicodemus reasoned. But they're not here for that. They are not here to listen to Him. They are here literally for their own bellies. Jesus says, you seek Me not because you saw signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Matthew Henry says, they are here not because He taught them, but because He fed them. And we'll open this up more when we turn to our our doctrine. But what a commentary this is on how hypocrites come to Christ for the wrong things. And how they come to Christ not for Christ Himself, but for the things of this world. Many, including in our own day, Christian, there are many who follow Christ not out of love, but for loaves, as it were. Even to the point where they'll cross a sea to get it. But he will not have them this way. They flattered him with the, with the title rabbi, but he faithfully tells them of their hypocrisy. And that's a lesson for us, by the way. We must learn not to let the fact that others may flatter us, we must learn not to let that cause us to flatter them. And just because they may come to us with endearing terms, we ought not to let the bribe of kind words bias our reproofs when reproofs are necessary. Verse 27, he says to them, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures or abides or remains unto eternal life or everlasting life. And this is a play on words, a picture, if you will. Just as we saw chapter 4, Jesus uses the, the similitude of water with the woman at the well because of her Jacob's well. So here, Jesus uses the similitude of food because of the loaves that they've just eaten. And he contrasts what they were seeking with what they ought to be seeking. He says to them, it's a command, do not labor for the food that perishes. And when Jesus says that here, do not labor for the food that perishes, it's not limited to literal food for the belly, though that's what they were interested in. But rather, it has reference to anything and everything that perishes in this fleeting and passing world. It has reference to everything that is temporal. Which could be bread. could be money. It could be prestige. Jesus says to this crowd, and He says to you this morning, don't labor for that stuff. The stuff that's fleeting, that will pass away with this world and this age. And implied in this, not only does He say, don't seek for that, don't labor for that stuff, Implied in that is he's saying, don't come to me for that kind of stuff. 
Jesus did not come into this world to give the woman at the well H2O to satisfy her physical thirst. And He did not come just so that He could feed a crowd in Galilee and feed their physical bellies just for a night with bread. But rather, those things are pictures of the real reason He came. That He came to give sinners living water and the living bread that comes down from heaven, which is Himself for the salvation of sinners. What a, what a tragic commentary this is on, the, on the, the short-sightedness and the foolishness of natural man. You think about it. How industrious and disciplined the natural man is in obtaining for himself the things of this passing life. Even crossing seas to get them. And yet, with all the energy and work they put into securing for themselves the things needful for the body, at the same time they neglect their never-dying soul. They even come to Jesus who is the one that holds in His hand eternal life and is the one who is willing to give it to anyone who desires it. And they say to Jesus, no thank you to that. Instead, I'll take bread. I'll take money. I'll take houses. I'll take prestige. Jesus says, don't labor for that. Labor for the food which will never perish. And we understand Jesus is speaking for effect. Hyperbole. He's not saying neglect the body. He's not saying starve yourself. He's saying give that which is temporal the amount of attention it needs, but give that which is eternal your supreme attention. He says labor for that. And notice the, word, the words that he uses. He doesn't say passively or casually wait for eternal life to just come and land in your lap. But rather, he tells them, labor for it. Labor to enter the kingdom and don't rest until you possess it as your own. Now, listen to me. My Calvinistic Reformed brethren here. Okay? Jesus who is the one who in just a few verses is going to say to these crowds, no one can come to Me unless the Father draws Him, that same Jesus tells unbelievers to labor for eternal life. Now, I say that for this reason. Don't ever let your Calvinism and your belief in the, in the total inability of man, don't ever let that eclipse the reality of man's responsibility to seek God. And our responsibility to tell them to seek God. Yes, we know theologically they won't seek God on their own. And yes, we know that they will come for Jesus for all sorts of reasons that are not the right reasons. But we ought not to reason to ourselves, well, oh well, if they're elect, God will get them. Rather, we press them in their dullness and in their hypocrisy, 
that the very things they don't desire are the very things they ought to desire. Just like Jesus tells the crowds on countless other occasions, things like strive to enter into the narrow gate. Yes, it takes a work of the Spirit to awaken a sinner and to draw them to Christ, but that does not negate our responsibility to press on the sinner that they ought to desire the things of God and press for the kingdom. And then He says, which the Son of Man will give you. Do not labor for the food that perishes or for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. Notice how quick he is to qualify the language of labor, to qualify that with emphasizing that this is a gift that the Son of Man gives. Lest anyone hear Jesus' words, labor for this kind of food, and they misunderstand that to mean that on the basis of my labor, God will then reward me with eternal life on the basis of my obedience rendered. No, this is a gift bestowed upon sinners by the Son of Man upon whom the Father, Jesus says, has set His seal. When He exhorts them to, to labor for this food, what He's telling them is to come to Him by faith and to come earnestly. And to come without delay. To seek from Him that which only He can give by grace. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now that's a good question insofar as it goes, though I suspect they had a different answer in mind. They've heard him correctly. It seems they understand he's talking about a food that's different from the kind of food that feeds our, our stomachs. And they understand that He has just told them to labor for that food. And so they ask Him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? How may we obtain this food? And I suspect that in their Jewish minds, they're thinking to themselves, we already have the law of Moses. That's where God has written down for us the works which He expects of His people And I suspect that probably some of them, maybe many of them, have a very external view of the the Mosaic Law, much like the rich young ruler did. You remember the rich young ruler? I've kept all these commandments even from my youth. What else more must I do? And I suspect they're sitting there, they're standing there thinking in their own minds, we have the Law of Moses. What more is required of us to be doing the works of God? And Jesus gives this extraordinary answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Jesus says to them, if you want to please God, and if you want to be found as one doing the works which please God, Here is the work you must do. Believe in Me. He's not denying here the works of faith that flow from faith. He's not teaching easy believism. It's not 
his main point here. He's telling them, these Jews who are asking, how can we please God? He's telling them that the starting point The foundation of a life and any life that will be pleasing to God is this. Faith in Christ. Receiving by faith the Savior, the Prophet, the Priest, the King that the Father has sent into the world. And we'll pick up on their response to that, Lord willing, next time. But that ends our exposition. Let's transition here now into our doctrine and application. And I've combined these for time's sake. Uh, some of these things got too long, and if I separated them, it would, I would go too long. So I want to I open up three doctrines slash applications from this passage. Three ways in which we are instructed in our minds doctrinally about how we think about God, we think about Christ, we think about the Gospel, we think about how we receive the Gospel, and the corollary applications for us from those instructions. And I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, doctrine and application from this text. Number one, we are taught here that hypocrites can and do seek Christ with great zeal, but for wrong reasons. I'll say that again. We are taught that hypocrites can and do seek Christ even with great zeal, but for the wrong reasons. And I would add as a sub-point to that bullet, and sometimes they even go to great lengths to do so, like we see here. Brothers and sisters, this is a stark example of the fact that there are, even today in our, in our uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where we live, in our area, many upon many who seek Christ in an external sense for the wrong motivations in a way that Christ rejects them. You think about these crowns. There is no doubt that they are a people who had a zeal for Christ. Right? I, I can't think of any better word to describe the fact that they're up in the morning and they are diligently searching for this one to the point where even though they're not positive they'll find Him, they get into their boats to cross the sea so that they might have another encounter with the Lord Jesus. And yet, at the end of the day, it proves to be a zeal for their own bellies and their own carnal appetites. And brothers and sisters, we must not marvel when we see that same principle working itself out in our own day. We must not be deceived and think that everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is genuinely a citizen of the kingdom who loves Christ for Christ. I'll give you a few examples, starting from the easy, low-hanging fruit and then bringing it closer to home things that we need to consider. In our city, tragically, people flock to to so-called churches where Christ supposedly dwells 
and they flock there merely for the earthly things that they think they will get from Jesus. Right? The prosperity gospel is explicit in this. The word of faith movement is becoming more and more explicit and is deceptive in this. They are selling a Jesus who exists to give people the food which perishes. Like health and wealth and power and control over your life and prestige and whatever else you want to name that the carnal sinner by nature loves. It's no surprise that messages like that are popular. If you want a message that will fill buildings and will gain interest and traction and people who want to give to a certain type of ministry, don't preach Christ and Him crucified. And the implications of that, that for the Christian, that means I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. Rather, preach a message that says Christ came to give the carnal person everything his natural appetites already wanted. Christian, we must not be deceived. Jesus does not own those churches or those Christians as His own any more than He owns these crowds as His own who are seeking Him for bread for their bellies. I know false, fake Christianity can have a facade that looks very close to the real thing. And I know that there are many who that seems a bit harsh and they'll reason to themselves, but they talk about Jesus so much. I mean, they say Jesus. There's probably Bibles everywhere in the building as well. Christian, that doesn't matter. I'm sure these crowds talked about Jesus on the way over and even talked about what He could do for them. That kind of a false gospel is a deceptive imposter that tells men and women that they can be genuine Christians and still retain their carnal love for the world. And what's even more tragic is that people will literally empty their wallets to be a part of it. Just like these crowds are willing to get on their boats and cross the sea if they can get a little more from Jesus. And people hear that Christ exists to give me money, give me wealth, and they say, I will give everything I've got if that's what He will give me. And I'll be at every prayer circle and I'll attend every anointing and every, every prophecy and you name it. And you say to yourself, doesn't that have an appearance of zeal for Jesus? Of course it has an appearance for, of zeal. But it's not a zeal for Christ Himself. That's the point. It's an idolatrous counterfeit which simply uses Christ as the means by which I gain what my flesh wants in this life. And it's deceiving multitudes. And I say that, brothers and sisters, you have neighbors who are in these things. You have friends who you know are caught up in these types of false Gospels. We must deal honestly with them as Jesus did with these crowds. You seek Me not because you saw signs, not because you care about the Word of Christ, but because of what Christ can give you in this life. That's not the Gospel. 
Let me bring, let me bring this closer to home, though, this application. It's easy for us inside here, you know, we think we've got all our doctrinal ducks in a row, and it's easy to look down our noses on, yeah, out there, people are so bad. We ought not to think that way. Listen carefully. In Reformed churches, also, there are hypocrites who seek Jesus as a means to their own carnal appetites. Don't think, it's just out there. They're the bad ones. We've got it all figured out. Some of the same people who look down on all those prosperity folks and how dare they just use Jesus as a means for, to get the things of this world and the stuff that He can give them, those same people are doing the exact same thing. Only the stuff that they want from Jesus comes in the form of pride and ego and the praise of man. This is a danger in solid churches. The devil has many different methods. He deceives people in different ways. There are people who run after good preaching. I mean, if there's a sermon, they're there. Every conference, they, they chase good, healthy churches But here's the deception. They do it not because they have a love for the Christ that dwells there, but because they have a love for the esteem that comes from looking like one of those people. And they've got their shelves loaded with their books. Some titles you can't even pronounce as a normal person because it's in Latin and whatever. And they've got their phones loaded with rich, deep theological instruction, but it's not because they love learning of Christ. It's because they love the accolades and the applause that comes from men for being one of the theologians. And they're in attendance at every gathering and every prayer meeting Not because they're eager to meet with Christ, but because they're eager to to be the goody-two-shoe religious observer that everyone looks at as the model Christian. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Whether someone comes to Jesus for loaves for their belly or for the praise of man, Jesus rejects both. And we need to be aware of the dangers that come at our doorstep, that might look different from those out there, but are nonetheless just, in fact, maybe more deceptive false gospel because they still have the cloak of orthodoxy. And it causes sinners to say, I mean, what do you mean? I can't be a fake. I can explain the Trinity and the hypostatic union. And I, I know all about justification by faith. I can't be a fake hypocrite. It's possible. Hypocrisy can run deep. I'll go even further. This is tragically even true of pastors. In our day of celebrityism, and so much, I don't even know the word to use, temptation for living for the praise of man, 
with our, the internet and the likes and the shares and all this and podcasts that take off, there are pastors who enter the ministry or while they are in the ministry, they decide that they're going to abuse the ministry as a means by which they gain a platform for themselves. It's not for no reason that both Peter and Paul exhort those who have aspirations for pastoral ministry, they exhort them not to do it for selfish ambition. Why do we think that is? Because even the sacred offices of the church can be used and abused for selfish ambition. And it looks like I'm a holy pastor who walks with God, but really I'm, I'm dangerously close to the things of God, but I'm actually just using them as a means to feed my own carnal desires to be loved and praised by men. Jesus had harsh words to say to those people in His day. Those who were leaders who made long prayers for attention and who blew a trumpet before they gave alms and who made themselves look disheveled for how often they fasted. Brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. We have the same dangers in our own day in the Christian church. And perhaps more than ever, with how easy it is to be picked up as a celebrity. The light of Judgment Day will reveal all the true motives of men and women. We don't have to have any worry about that. Christ knows perfectly who are His own and who are the hypocrites. And He warns us about counterfeits for our good. Christian, I want to say this by way of application. We must be discerning in our assessment of what true saving faith is. John, among other books, but John in particular, helps us. You remember chapter 2. Those who believed in Jesus, but He did not believe in them. That's possible. Like these crowds, in a sense, believing in Jesus, but they're believing Him for something He did not come to be, and therefore He does not entrust Himself to them. Christian, don't be convinced by the merely external. Don't be persuaded and and overly wowed by the flash in the pan decisions for Christ and whatever else. Look for the fruit of coming to Christ for Christ Himself. That's how you most know a genuine Christian. Is that even if Jesus doesn't give me food, but He gives me hunger, and even if He doesn't give me prosperity, but rather He gives me suffering, yet I still love Christ. Because that demonstrates a heart that's been crucified to the world so that it might live to God. Second application, or doctrine and application. Number two. Faith is the first work that God requires of us. Faith is the first work that God requires of us. Jesus says here to these crowds, This is the work of God that you believe upon Him whom He sent. Sometimes, and you'll, if you read enough commentaries, you'll run across this stuff or books. 
sometimes people pit Jesus' gospel against Paul's gospel and Paul's writing. And they claim that while Paul clearly taught a salvation by faith and by grace, Jesus taught a salvation by obedience. This text, among many others, proves that false. Yes, it's true that Jesus preaches obedience, just as Paul preaches obedience. But Jesus, like Paul, teaches that any true obedience that is pleasing to God must necessarily flow from the root of faith in Christ. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Romans 14.23 Whatever is not from faith is sin. Galatians 2.20 The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christian and non-Christian, faith alone, before it has even produced any good works, faith is the first indispensable act of the soul without which nothing else can please God. I think it was Spurgeon that said something like, the life of good works without faith is like the fly in the ointment. You can have the the cleanest life on the outside. And if you're not living that life out of sincere faith in Christ, God's gift to sinners, God looks upon the whole thing as spoiled and rotten. When Jesus calls faith a work here, He's not using it in the technical sense that Paul usually uses the word work, okay? That's a lesson in Bible interpretation, by the way. Just because a word might mean something in one context doesn't mean that you can just say, well, Jesus uses the same word. Clearly, it has to mean the same thing here. Words have a a spectrum of meaning. Paul, when he speaks of works, he often emphasizes that we are not saved by works, Because in Paul's context, works carry the connotation of merit and earning the grace of God. Right? So when Paul's denying that we're saved by works, he's denying that we can do anything, perform anything, that will in turn make God our debtor who has to then reward us with eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Here, Jesus is responding to Jews who have asked Him, what works must we do to do the works of God? In other words, theirs was a question, how do we obtain this food that you're talking about? How do we obtain favor with God? And Jesus' answer is, if you want to talk about works that please God, this is what you must do. You must believe in Me. My unbelieving friend, I want you to listen to me. This is one of the many beautiful facets of the Gospel of grace. The Gospel is through and through, from first to last, a beautiful gift, a free gift of the grace of God. 
Because it begins with what God has done for sinners that He did not have to do. It begins by the fact that Christ, the Son of God, who dwells in heaven, condescended willingly and freely to this world. A world that is utterly undeserving of His presence and dwelling amongst us. And not only that, Christ does not just come to wow us in His divinity, but He comes taking the form of a man. The infinite God takes on finite human flesh. And more than that, not just the form of any human man, but He takes the form of a servant. The Lord of the ages who is worthy of our obedience comes as a man to learn obedience. Not for His own sake, but for our sake. He comes and He pleases His Father at every point. Suffering at the hands of sinners and at the apex of His mission here upon earth. The author of life lays down His life, gives His life upon the cross of Calvary to bear in His own sinless body the punishment for the sins of all His people. He lays down as the Lamb of God His life and becomes a curse for us to pardon and to blot out all the terrible transgressions of His people. That's grace. That God would even give such a one to sinners. But grace runs even deeper, and this is what Jesus is emphasizing here. That's great to know God sent a Savior. But what about when the burdened and hopeless sinner who knows the depths of depravity in his own heart, and he knows how exceedingly awful his crimes against God have been, and he knows that there is such shame that he despairs to even dare look to God in hopes of being saved. What about in light of what God has done in sending Christ, what about when that burdened sinner asks the question, and can I become a beneficiary of that? And if so, how can I become a beneficiary of that? How can it be that Christ's perfect, sinless life can be given to me? And how can it be that Christ's perfect, sacrificial death might become my death so that He bears my punishment and I get to be set free? How can that be? And the divine reply to you, sinner, is not, you can have my son if you meet this certain standard of righteousness. The divine reply to you is not, work the works of the law and we'll see how well you do if you can be worthy of my son. Rather, the divine reply to the wounded sinner is, come to my son just as you are. Sin sinful as you are through and through, and receive the gift of My Son by simple faith. 
Faith is the only way we receive Christ because faith is a self-emptying disposition of the, of the soul. Faith is that unique motion of the soul in which we throw away all confidence in ourselves. Faith is the motion of the soul in which we embrace our own emptiness and our own unworthiness and helplessness to give anything to God to earn eternal life. And on the flip side, faith is when we see in ourselves nothing but sin and demerit And yet, we trust in something outside ourselves. We turn away from looking inside as the grounds for why God might accept me, and instead, I look outward to nothing but the promise of an almighty God in Christ. That though I have nothing that is worthy of eternal life, God has promised And He has given His Son. And His Son said that whoever comes to Me, I will in no wise cast out. That is the only human posture that honors the infinite value of the gift of Christ. If we come to to God with sin-stained works, and say, here you are, is this enough to get your son? What does that say about what we think about the value of Christ? If we think that dirty, defiled, sinful works are enough to earn Him. But rather, God says to the sinner, no, no, no. Anything you bring me will just offend me. Because nothing you have can compare to the gift that I've given in my Son. And therefore, the only proper response is that you come to me with empty hands and a heart that knows its own emptiness and defiledness. And that says to me, be gracious to me in Christ on the basis of the promise of your Word. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, that is what Christ says to you this morning. Every sinner who is here Every kind of sinner, every type of sinner, whether you're young, whether you're old and you've lived a long life of sin, whether you're black or you're white or you're religious or you're irreligious, to every kind of sinner, Christ says, come to me and I will not cast you out. Though your sins be as scarlet, Christ says to you, I will make you whiter than snow. Sinner, you need to understand, your sins, no matter how great they are, are no hindrance to His grace. Because it is not given to you on the basis of your righteousness. But salvation and grace is given to the unrighteous. And so receive Christ He is the bread from heaven. And He will give to you Himself that food which will endure unto everlasting life. Everything your soul needs to be cleansed of your sin and to be brought near to God, Christ stands ready to give you by faith. That brings us to the third and final thing. 
Number three, we are instructed to exhort sinners to labor not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto everlasting life. This is one of those statements from the Lord that deserves some of our contemplation. And I'm brief here because I realize our time is running short. But I do encourage you, Christian, to meditate and to think upon the implications of Jesus' faithful Word to these crowds, these carnal crowds who are living for this world, and how He turns their eyes upon heaven and the world to come. Okay? We, as His people, are taught to exhort sinners not to labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto everlasting life. I want us to apply this to ourselves regarding our evangelism of the lost. We are given here by Jesus His worldview as it pertains to the fleeting nature of this life and the never-ending world that is coming. And Christian, you know as well as I do that that is a worldview that is inverted by sinners. That is reversed and turned inside out. And people live as though eternity isn't even coming and that this life is all that there is. Like these crowds, your neighbors and your friends and your colleagues, most of them probably, their M.O. is to live as though this life is all there is and therefore let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And because they do not have the light of God's Word, they simply live day by day like sheep going to the slaughter, meal by meal and season by season until their days are ended. And that day that they pretended would never come suddenly is upon them. Not realizing that the state of their soul at the point of death is what determines their eternity. Christian, may the blood of our families and friends and neighbors never be upon our hands because we allowed them to go living for the food which perishes without warning them about the food that leads to eternal life, without telling them of that and warning them about what happens if they don't find Christ before they die. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, At least let them leap into hell over our dead bodies and with our arms wrapped around their ankles. And if sinners must perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. He said, if hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and not let one go unwarned or unprayed for. Christian, there is a real heaven to gain and a real hell to shun. And how can we follow Christ who lived in the light of eternity 
while pretending with our neighbors who we know are perishing, pretending that that's not really a big deal. Christian, if not us, who will carry the light of God's Word to them? We, the church, the redeemed, and we alone are those who are the light of the world, who have the the Word of God. And we must, Christian, think of ourselves as the first person in a house that smells smoke. And we realize there's danger and we go around room to room waking up others to tell them there's danger coming. That's how we must regard ourselves in this world. Lest our family and our friends perish under the wrath of God. Christian, let let me close. We, We need to pray for grace and boldness. May God grant us to fight with faith and valor as citizens of the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. Like Jesus did. May God grant us with the same zeal the world tries to get us to pursue its worldly fleeting ends. May we with that same zeal and even greater zeal beg them and plead with them to consider the things of the life, of the life to come. C.T. Studd, we have one life, it will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Christian, let them think you to be a fool. What is a season of being thought a fool in comparison with the reward of seeing a soul saved? Because you told them what they thought was a foolish message, and yet God made that foolish message to them the wisdom of God. What is mockery and temporarily being regarded as the scum of the earth if it means the reward of seeing more sinners in heaven? Let us like pilgrim in pilgrim's pro- Christian and Pilgrim's Progress run ourselves towards the celestial city and along the way seek to bring as many as we can along with us. May God be our help. Let's pray. Our Father, who is sufficient for these things? Even our sanctified imaginations cannot comprehend the value of one's soul. And when we think upon the things of eternity and heaven and hell, we are very much aware that we are thinking about things that we cannot even comprehend. What the agony will be for the soul that is sentenced to eternity under your torment and judgment. When we try to fathom what the beauties and glories of heaven will be. And yet, Father, you reveal these things and you confront them with us in your word. Confront us with them in your word. Father, we pray that we would heed the example of Christ and that we would, with sobriety, be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us.
Father, we know that the world thinks your people are foolish, that they think we are, of all men, most to be pitied, denying ourselves things in this life for the sake of a life that they don't believe is coming. And yet we know that the day will come in which we will be shown to be the wise. Father, we pray that they would not remain in their foolishness. That they too would see the peril of Your judgment. That we would be unashamed of living as citizens of the Kingdom of Christ and the world to come. Father, we pray for any who are here this morning. We pray, cause them to trust Christ. Cause them to flee from the wrath to come and to run safely into the embrace of Christ who gives and stands ready to give eternal life to everyone who asks Him for it. Be merciful, we pray. We ask that You would draw near to us as we come to the Lord's table. Father, thank You for the forgiveness of sins. How much and how often we fail. Father, we thank You for the example of Christ, but we know that if our salvation depends on how well we have imitated Him, we are doomed. We thank You that He is not only our example, but that He is our substitute. That in Him, though we are failures, And though we fail again and again, yet we are accepted in the Beloved for His righteousness, for His sake. Father, strengthen our faith at the table, we pray. Bless Your people, we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.